We are right in the middle of the series on the Psalms. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Psalm 9. Psalm 9. It is somewhat of a lengthy psalm. There is no way we're going to be able to exhaust this psalm this morning. There is much here that is spiritually profitable to us. And we'll be just kind of picking out some highlights of Psalm 9. So let's begin Psalm 9. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. I will recount all your wonderful deeds. I will be glad and exalt in you. I will sing praises to your name, O Most High. When my enemies turn back, they stumble and perish before your presence. For you have maintained my just cause. You have sat on the throne giving righteous judgment. You have rebuked the nations. You have made the wicked perish. You have blotted out their names forever and ever. The enemy came to an end in everlasting ruin. Their cities you rooted out. The very memory of them has perished. But the Lord sits enthroned forever. He has established his throne for justice, and he judges the world with righteousness. He judges the people with uprightness. The Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. And those who know your name put their trust in you. For you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. Sing praises to the Lord who sits enthroned in Zion. Tell among the people his deeds. For who has avenged blood is mindful of them. He does not forget the cry of the afflicted. Be gracious to me, O Lord. See my affliction from those who hate me. O you who lift me up from the gates of death, that I may recount all your praises that is in the gates of the daughter of Zion. I may rejoice in your salvation. The nations have sunk in the pit that they have made, in the net that they hide their own foot have been caught in. The Lord has made himself known. He has executed judgment. The wicked are snared in the work of their own hands. The wicked shall return to Sheol, all the nations that forget God. For the needy shall not always be forgotten, and the hope of the poor shall not perish forever. Arise, O Lord, let not man prevail. Let the nations be judged before you. Put them in fear, O Lord. Let the nations know they are but men. Let's go, Lord, in prayer at this time. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your truth, that we are given a light, that we can have understanding of who you are, that we can have understanding of who we are, that we can have an understanding of the grace of God and the salvation of God that is in Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you for your precious word, and we ask that you would guide us now in the preaching of your word and keep us from error. And I pray that there will be food for the souls of your people, that we'd be strengthened this morning from your word. And Lord, we thank you again for brothers and sisters in Christ. Thank you for your grace that has touched our lives. We were spiritually dead and you made us alive and you adopted us into your family. And we thank you in Jesus' name, amen. If someone were to ask you, what's the ultimate final goal of God's grace? What is God's grace hoping to accomplish in your life and in my life? What is the goal of the grace of God ultimately in your life and in my life? God's grace can make you more financially wise. God's grace can make you a better citizen and make you a better neighbor. God's grace can make you a better husband. God's grace can make you a better wife. God's grace can make you a better son, a better daughter, a better parent. God's grace 
can help you make better decisions in life. God's grace can help you to love people better. God's grace can help you pursue personal holiness. That is, if you're a child of God, there is that within you that you long to be holy as he is holy, to be clean before the Lord, and it is the grace of God that produces personal holiness and gives us a longing to be holy as he is holy. God's grace can help us to see that this world is not all that there is, that we are all marching to the city of God, that this world is not our home. Our home is in heaven, reserved for us by the person of Jesus Christ. But what is the ultimate goal of God's grace? What is the ultimate objective? What is God's grace hoping to accomplish in my life and in your life? Answer, the praise of God, the worship of God. You remember in John 4, Jesus has the encounter with the Samaritan woman at the well. And at one point he says to her, go call your husband. And she says, I don't have a husband. He said, you're right, you don't have a husband. Uh, but you've had five husbands, and the one you're with now is not your husband. You've spoken the truth. And she said, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. And she said, you know, I got a question. You Jews say that we have to worship God in Jerusalem, and our people say we can worship God on another mountain. What's right? What do you say, Jesus, about worship? And Jesus said, truly I say to you, there's a day coming when neither in this mountain nor in this city you will worship God. But God will be worshiped in spirit and in truth, and he is seeking worshipers. The ultimate goal of the grace of God is that we become worshipers of God, that we would praise God. Some of you may remember the song by Andre Crouch. I'm probably dating myself. How can I say thanks for the things that you have done for me? Things so undeserved, yet you gave to prove your love for me. The voices of a million angels could not express my gratitude. All that I am and ever hope to be, I owe it all to thee. That is the goal of God's grace, to bring us all to the place where we worship and praise God, to God be the glory for the great things he has done. The title of my message this morning is this, the goal of the grace of God is the praise of God. The goal of the grace of God is the praise of God. Psalm 9 is a psalm of praise. It is a psalm written by David. And originally, many scholars believe that Psalm 9 and 10 actually are one psalm. In the Greek Septuagint, Psalm 9 and 10 is one psalm. There's an acrostic pattern connected with these two psalms. Psalm 9 begins with the first 11 letters of the Hebrew alphabet while the verses of Psalm 10 begins with the letters of the second half of the Hebrew alphabet. And then you will also notice that Psalm 10 doesn't have a title. And it's the only psalm from Psalm 3 to 32 that doesn't have a title. And so if Psalm 9 and 10 went together, that would make sense. And so many scholars believe that Psalm 9 and 10 go together. We're going to break it up this morning. I'm preaching Psalm 9 this Sunday, and Artavillus will be preaching Psalm 10 next Sunday. But keep in mind, this, re this may very well be one psalm. So let's look at Psalm 9 this morning. What do we see? What do we observe? What is Psalm 9 all about? Psalm 9 is a psalm of praise. It is a psalm of triumph and of victory. 
What do you see? What do we observe in Psalm 9? Here is a man praising God. Here's a man who has found his joy, his happiness, his gladness in the Lord. And he is rejoicing. He is praising God. Look at verses 1 and 2. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. I will recount all of your wonderful deeds. I will be glad and exalt in you. I will sing praises to your name, O Most High. Here is a man who is worshiping God. He is praising God. Charles Helen Spurgeon called this a holy resolve, a holy resolution. Four times he says, I will. I will give thanks to the Lord with all of my heart. I will recount all of your wonderful deeds. I will be glad and exalt in you. I will sing praises to your name, O Most High. I will worship the Lord. Observe also the object of David's worship. He is giving all the praise and all the glory to the Lord. Years ago, I went down to South Holland, Illinois, to hear a preacher friend of mine by the name of Brother Conrad Merle preach. And he's preaching at a house church, and he was preaching from John 15 on Jesus' statement that I am the true vine and you are the branches. And he made this statement. He said, in religion, you have great men, but in Christianity, you have only one great man, the man Christ Jesus. Anytime you find men boasting and bragging about themselves and their ministry, pastors boasting about how big their church is, 10,000 members, I've written 30 books, I am invited to speak at various conferences all over the world, I've got a radio ministry, you've touched religion because in Christianity there is only one great man and that's Christ Jesus and all of us are just branches in the vine. David is worshiping and praising the Lord and giving thanks to the Lord. And then look at verses 11 through 14. It's almost a mirror of verses one and two. He expounds it a little bit, but it mirrors one and two. Sing praise to the Lord who sits enthroned in Zion. Tell among the people his deeds. For he who avenges blood is mindful of them. He does not forget the cry of the afflicted. Be gracious to me, O Lord. See my affliction from those who hate me. O you who lift me up from the gates of death, that I may recount, oh, there it is again, that I may recount all of your praises that in the gates of the daughters of Zion, I may rejoice in your salvation. So what do we see in Psalm 9? We see a man who is worshiping and praising God. Here is David, the great psalmist. And what is he doing? He's worshiping and praising God. That's not natural. That's supernatural. That is the work of the grace of God and what do you find when you turn through the pages of the Holy Scripture? How is God's people described? Again and again in Holy Scripture, God's people are described as a praising people. Pagan religion is always sad, always gloomy, always solemn, and always full of fear. There's no joy, no rejoicing, no praise in Buddhism. All the Buddhists that I personally know, their families are a wreck. There is rivalry and jealousy and bitterness and hatred. There's no rejoicing in Buddhism. Buddha, Buddha himself was in a quest for enlightenment, an enlightenment that he confessed he never found. There's no joy, no rejoicing. No praising of God in Buddhism. 
There's no joy in Islam. There's no assurance of salvation in Islam. You just got to hope, cross your fingers, and hope that somehow you've done enough good deeds that when you die, Allah will accept you. But you never know. Have you done enough to please Allah? There's no praise, no joy, no rejoicing in Islam. There's no joy, no praise, no worship in a Hindu religion. You just hope and pray that when you're reincarnated, you don't come back as a cow or a rat. You hope that you make it a step up, not down, but you don't know. There's no joy, no rejoicing in pagan religions. Often there's nothing but fear, fear. I remember the testimony of a little Laotian girl by the name of Pernata. Pernata lived with Ed and Phyllis Williams before Paula and her sister and brothers went to live with Ed and Phyllis. Pernata was Laotian, born in Laos, but also she was raised in northern Thailand. And she said one day she heard singing in her village. And she thought, what is that? What are those people doing? She heard people praising God, and she went to investigate. What is, what is going on? Why are they singing? Who are these people? And she attended church, and she heard the gospel, and God saved Pernata. What drew her in? The praise of God's people, people rejoicing in the Lord. Here is the great characteristic of the people of God. God's people are a praising people. And what do you find when you go to the New Testament? How's the early church described? How's the early church described in Acts chapter 2 when the church is birthed? Acts chapter 2, verse 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread, to prayer. And day by day, attending the temple together, breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God. That's how the early church is described. They were a people devoted to the apostles' teaching, to breaking of bread, to fellowship, to prayer, and they were always in community together, and they were receiving their word with joy and happiness, praising God. Then what do you find in Acts 16? Paul and Silas go to Philippi. They are arrested, they are beaten, and they're thrown in jail. And what does Scripture say? There they are in jail, just whining and complaining. Oh, my. No, that's not what Scripture says. Scripture says in Acts 16.25, about midnight... Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the prisoners were all listening. Who are these guys? Shackled up in a prison cell. And what are they doing? They are praying and worshiping God, praising him. And all the prisoners heard it. And when there's an earthquake, nobody left. Who are these guys praising God in a prison cell? Here's the great characteristic of the Christian church. Here's the great character of a Christian. A, some, a Christian is somebody who is praising God. In many ways, this is the most thorough test of all. Are you a Christian this morning or are you not? We can test ourselves. We can just stop right at this point in the service and just test ourselves and ask ourselves one question. Do I praise God? Not, not, uh, I, I try to worship God on Sunday or not, I, I believe in God, but I'm simply asking one question to you and me. Do you praise God? When morning gilds the sky, my awakening soul shall cry, let Jesus Christ be praised. It's a new day. Let Jesus Christ be praised. 
That is the characteristic of the people of God. A sad and mournful church is a contradiction in terms. God's people are a praising people. We used to have hymnals in our churches, right? What's a hymnal? Oh, it's this book that's got like 40 or 400 or 500 songs of praise. It's all about praising God. The Psalms that we're studying here, this is the Hebrew hymnal. It's all about praising God. If you're not praising God this morning, it's because you are ignorant of him and are spiritually blind. He is the great and eternal God. He is the creator of everything. He is our maker. He is the author of our salvation. Paul says in Ephesians 1, the blessed God. Is that your concept of God? He is the blessed God, the wonderful God, the glorious God. He's the blessed God. He's the maker, the creator, the author of salvation. He has given everything to me. Every breath I take is a gift from him. Your health, your strength, food, water, clothing, your home, your friends. He is the giver of every good and perfect gift. Your children, your family, your job, everything is a gift from God. And if you're a Christian here this morning, you have new life in Christ. You know that your sins are forgiven. You know that God is your heavenly father. He has given you his Holy Spirit and his Holy Spirit bears witness with your spirit that you're a child of God and you cry out, Abba, Father. You're no longer afraid to die because Jesus has been victorious over the grave. You're looking forward to glory that you know for a Christian, we're going to drop this flesh one day and we're going to enter into the glory of God. No wonder David is praising God. Here is a man praising God. Do you remember what C.S. Lewis said about praise? Lewis wrote a short essay titled, A Word About Praise. In his book, Reflection on the Psalms, that highlights a problem he felt as he read the Psalms before he was a believer. It troubled him that God was always calling for praise. It sounded to him like a vain woman always demanding a compliment. You know what Lewis is saying? And he said, you know what? Before I was a Christian, I really struggled with this idea of praising God. You read the Psalms and God is always calling forth the praise of his people. And Lewis said, this really bothered me. Sounds like God is some old woman just looking for a compliment. But then something struck me, he said, that changed his entire perspective. He began to realize that the whole world rings with praise. The most obvious fact about praise, whether of God or anything else, strangely escaped me. I thought of it in terms of a compliment, approval, or the giving of honor. I had never noticed that all enjoyment spontaneously overflows into praise. The world rings with praise. Readers, their favorite poets. Walkers, praise the countryside. Players, praise their favorite game. Praise of weather, praise of wine, praise of actors, praise of singers, praise of automobiles, praises of horses, praises of colleges, praise of countries, flowers, children, rare stamps, rare beetles, and he said even sometimes politicians and scholars. He said, it escaped my notice that people always praise what they love and what they enjoy. Here is this man, David, and he's saying, this is what I enjoy. This is my joy, my happiness. It is praising God and worshiping God. The world's full of praise. You don't have to listen to somebody very long and you know what they're passionate about. Oh man, they're passionate about golf or they're passionate about baseball. They love those Cubs 
or they're passionate about music or the arts or horses or dogs. It just comes out spontaneously. We praise what we love and value. And then Lewis goes on to say, not only do we praise what we value, but we encourage others to. Hey, wasn't that ball game marvelous? Did you see that? We encourage others to praise. And so here in Psalm 9, we see a man, and what is he doing? He's praising God. It is the mark of a Christian. What else do we see? David is rejoicing. He is praising God. Why? Why is David praising God? God has totally, utterly, and completely destroyed David's enemies. Did you see that? Wow. Look at verses 3 through 6. When my enemies turn back, they stumble and perish before your presence. For you have maintained my just cause. You have sat on the throne giving righteous judgment. You have rebuked the nations. You have made the wicked perish. You have blotted out their names forever and ever. The enemy came to an end in everlasting ruins. Their cities you rooted out. The very memory of them has perished. Now notice verses 1 and 2, you have that resolve. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. But now you notice you. Circle you. My enemies turn back. They stumble and perish before your presence. You have maintained my just cause. You have rebuked the nations. You have made the wicked perish. You have blotted out their names forever. You have rooted out and ruined their cities. God has utterly and totally and completely destroyed David's enemies. And did you notice the words that are used here to describe what God has done to their enemies? My, when my enemies turn back, they're retreating, they're leaving. When my enemies turn back, they stumble and perish before your presence. For you have maintained my just cause. You have sat on the throne giving righteous judgment. You have rebuked the nations. You have made the wicked, what? Perish. You have blotted out their names forever and ever. The enemy has come to an end in everlasting ruins. Their cities you rooted out. The very memory of them has perished. David said, you have totally and utterly destroyed my enemies. The Lord has conquered all of David's enemies. In David's day, the enemy was the Philistines. And you remember as a young man, he kills Goliath. And many scholars believe that Psalm 9, David was reflecting on that victory that God gave him over Goliath. That was his enemy. But throughout David's life, he always had these enemies, the Philistines. And finally, when he is crowned king, he establishes his kingdom. He secures the border and the enemy is no more in the land of Israel. The Philistines have been defeated utterly and totally under David's reign. As Christians, we have some enemies, and God has totally and utterly and completely destroyed them. Sin is an enemy. Sin is that which separates us from God. Sin is that which can destroy you and me. Sin destroys marriages. Sin destroys families. Sin destroys relationships. Sin destroys friendships. Sin destroys churches. Sin destroys pastors. Sin destroys elders. Sin destroys deacons. Sin destroys church members. Sin destroys communities. 
and sin destroys nations. Sin destroys lives. It is our enemy. I don't remember who said this, so I can't give them credit, but you remember the statement, sin will take you further than you're planning on going. Sin will keep you longer than you're planning on staying. And sin will cost you more than you're planning on spending. Did David's sin cost him? It cost him dearly. Sin destroys lives. In the book of Joel, Joel the prophet pictures the ravaging nature of sin. And what does he say in Joel 1, 4? What the cutting locust left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust left, the hopping locust has eaten. And what the hopping locust left, the destroying locust has eaten. The prophet Joel is giving us a picture of the utter destruction of sin. There's nothing left. It devours everything. The destructive power of sin. And yet the truth is, nobody believes that. Nobody believes the destructive power of sin. Oh, you Christians are always making such a big deal about sin. Just relax. It's not that serious. We really believe kind of the opposite, that, that life and joy and excitement really living is when you're living in sin. Go out and party. Drug, sex, and rock and roll, that's where life is found. That's what the world believes about sin. Sin is that which is fun and exciting. And you know, God's the one that makes everything a spoiler. He's got all these rules and regulations and, and Christianity is just dry and boring and, and, you know, just no life in it. Right? That's the way it's pictured. And it's the exact opposite. Sin is that which destroys and that true life, true joy is found in a relationship with God and walking with him. That's where true happiness and real life is found. But we think the opposite. Deep down, we think, ah, do, do, do you remember how, how, how sin was sold to Adam and Eve? If you go back to, to Genesis 3, the serpent comes to Eve and says, did God say you cannot eat of any tree of the garden? Oh, no, no. God said we're free to eat of all that's in the garden except one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We cannot eat of that or we'll surely die. Oh, no, no. You're not going to die. God's just overstating it here. He's misleading here. You're not going to get hurt. It's not going to harm you. You're not going to die. God knows that when you eat of this fruit, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God and you'll know good from evil. Oh, that sounds pretty good. You mean we could be like God and our eyes are going to be open and yeah. That's how sin is sold. And then what the scripture says, she looked at the fruit and it was desirable. Hey, this is a good looking fruit. This thing's going to taste delicious. That's how sin sold. That's how it's marketed. And yet scripture says it's sin and what destroys us. Praise God. Jesus Christ has dealt with our enemy called sin. He paid the penalty for our sin. He is delivering us from the power of sin, and he's going to deliver us ultimately from the presence of sin. God is dealing with all of our enemies. As Christians, we have an enemy. His name is Satan, the devil. Jesus called him a liar, a murderer. It is because of him that sin and death came into this world. He is God's enemy, and he becomes our enemies when we follow Christ. And what did Paul say in Ephesians 6, 12? For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual forces of evil. 
Paul is writing to Christians and he's reminding them, we've got a spiritual battle. This isn't flesh and blood, folks. There's a spiritual battle going on. And then he says, we wrestle. Ooh, wrestling. What comes to your mind when you think about wrestling? That's very intimate. That's two guys on a mat grappling with one another. This spiritual warfare that you're in, it's personal. It's you against him. It's a wrestling match. It's a spiritual battle. Peter writes in 1 Peter 5.8, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him. You've got an enemy who is seeking to devour you and destroy you and your family and your church. And then you remember Luke 22, 31. The Lord says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demands to have you that he might sift you like wheat. Boy, I'd like to know the Greek in that, wouldn't you? Satan has demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you, Peter. And yes, you're, you're going to stumble. Before the, the day ends, you're going to deny me three times. Even though Peter says, Lord, I'm ready to go to, to the prison with you. I'm ready to die. And the Lord goes on and says, Peter, before the, day, uh, before the rooster crows, you'll deny me three times. But Peter, you're going to stumble. But after you've turned, strengthen your brothers. Was it Spurgeon that said, a Christian may stumble on board the ship, but he'll never go overboard. He'll never go overboard. And the Lord is saying, I prayed for you, Peter. You're going to stumble. You're going to fall. But your faith is going to hold because I'm going to hold you. I'm going to hold you. We have an enemy, the devil. He is a person. Not a force or a power, but a person. He has a personality. The devil is a superhuman personality. Bigger than man, stronger than man, greater than man, but not divine. You remember in, Luke, uh, in the book of Jude, it says the archangel Michael would not even enter into a dispute or an argument with the devil about the body of Moses, but said, the Lord rebuke you. You are so strong and so powerful, I'm not even going to mess with you. This is the archangel Michael. But the Lord rebuke you. The devil has defeated every man and woman has ever walked on the face of this earth. He defeated Adam. He defeated Noah. He defeated Abraham. He defeated David. All fell. Every human being who's ever walked on this earth has been defeated by the devil, except one, the God-man, Jesus Christ. He is the only one who defeated the devil. You remember the scene there in the wilderness, tempting the Lord, and not once did he yield. He is the unblemished, spotless lamb of God who never sinned once. He defeated the devil. We have enemies. We've got sin. We've got the devil. We've got a world. Love not the world, John says, nor the things that are in the world. For all that is in the world, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, is passing away. And it is not from the Father. So do not love the world. We've got an enemy in flesh. Constantly battling our flesh and the lust of the flesh. And then we got one last enemy. 1 Corinthians 15, 26. Death is called the last enemy. Death hangs over all of us. Death stalks us. We know it's there. We know he's coming for us. We never know when, where, or how, but we know death is coming. Death is always there, creating fear within us. Is there any hope? Is there anybody who has ever defeated death? Yeah, there's one. The God-man, the mediator, Jesus Christ. 
he and he alone defeated the grave. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, 55, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And you remember David, he's a prophet And he says in Psalm 16, you will not allow your Holy One to see corruption. Don't know what David understood, but he understood one thing. God's Messiah, God's Holy One will not see corruption. He's going to rise again. God has totally and utterly and completely destroyed our enemies, just like David I've been meditating on 2 Timothy all week. It is such a great epistle. There's Paul in chapter 4. He's all alone. Only Luke is with me. Demas, having loved the world, has abandoned the faith. All in Asia turned against me, but the Lord stood with me. And he goes on to tell Timothy, the time of my departure has come. I've fought a good fight. I've kept the faith. And he goes on to say that the Lord will deliver me from every lion's mouth and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. But then you back up in chapter 1, and what does he say in chapter 1? Remember that Paul's in prison. He's probably going to be beheaded soon. He's going to die. What kind of letter would you write if you're on your deathbed? That's what 2 Timothy is all about. And what does Paul write in 2 Timothy 1.10? Through the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. He abolished death for us. Our last enemy, he has totally obliterated. And then what does Revelation 21 talk about? Revelation 21.4 He will wipe away every tear from their eye, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be any mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. The former things have passed away. And you read Revelation 19 and 20, and God has totally, completely, and utterly destroyed all of our enemies. The devil is gone, sin is gone, death is gone, no more sorrow, no more pain. Totally obliterated it. And so here is David, this great psalmist. What is he doing? He is praising God. Do you see the psalmist here? He is praising God for a great salvation. And then there's one other point that is important in this psalm. David is praising God because God is a righteous judge. Look at verse 4. For you have maintained my just cause. You sat on the throne giving righteous judgment. Verse 7, but the Lord sits enthroned forever. He has established his throne for justice. Verse 8, he has judged the world with righteousness. He judges the people with uprightness. Verse 12, for he who avenges blood is mindful of them. He does not forget the cry of the afflicted. Verse 16, the Lord has made himself known, he who executes judgment. Verse 19, arise, O Lord, let not man prevail. Let the nations be judged before you. Put them in fear, O Lord. Let the nations know that they are but men. David is praising God for all his enemies are destroyed, and he is praising God because he is the righteous judge of the whole world. J.I. Packard, in his book, Knowing God, says this, Do you believe in divine judgment? By which I mean, do you believe in a God who acts as a judge? Many, it seems, do not, says Packard. But there are few things stressed more strongly in the Bible than the reality of God's work as judge. God judged Adam and Eve for their sin and expelled them out of the garden and pronounced judgment on Adam and Eve. 
God judged the corrupt world in the days of Noah, sending a flood, killing every man, woman, and child on the face of this earth, except for Noah and his family. He brought judgment on a wicked world. God judged Sodom and Gomorrah. God judged the land of Egypt and Egypt for their treatment of Israel and sent 10 plagues on Egypt and utterly, totally demolished the land of Egypt. God judged those who worshiped the golden calf. God judged Nabad and Abihu for offering strange fire. God judged Achan for taking some items that were under the band. You remember that in Joshua chapter one and two, Jericho has fallen. We're gonna take this little city called Ai. It shouldn't be a big deal. Let's send down a few troops and Israel gets whooped. And they inquire of the Lord and find out that Achan and his family have taken things under the ban and they take Achan and his family outside the camp and stone him to death for disobeying the Lord. God judged the nation of Israel and Judah for their unfaithfulness to God. God judged King Nebuchadnezzar. One day, King Nebuchadnezzar gets up and he sees Babylon the Great and he says, look at this great city that I have made. Man, God says, no, you are going to be struck down for seven years and you're going to eat grass like a cow and the rain is going to fall on your back until your reason returns to you and you acknowledge that God most high reigns. And what about the New Testament? God brings judgment upon Ananias and Sapphira for lying. God judged Herod. There's a count in the book of Acts that King Herod comes before the people. Josephus, the Jewish historian, says he actually had a robe that was woven with, with gold and silver, and the people cried out, the voice of a God and not a man. And God struck him down that very hour, and he died. God brought some judgment on the church in Corinth. Paul makes reference to that in John 15. Some of you have died and some of you are sick because you're taking the Lord's Supper in an improper manner. Hmm. God is a God of judgment. And, and David is praising God because he is a righteous judge. Why? Why is he praising God? Because he is a righteous judge. Because in this life, we lose. Got that? In this life, we lose, folks. John the Baptist stands up and he tells Herod, it's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. This is a sin against God. What did they get John? He was beheaded. And how did they treat Jesus? They took the, the Son of God, the spotless Lamb of God, and took an innocent man, and they crucified him on a cross outside of Jerusalem. That's what sinful men do. They hate the light. How did the world treat the apostles? Every single one of them got martyred, killed for their faith. Paul writes in 2 Timothy, Timothy Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. Be careful of him. He vigorously opposes our teaching. The Lord will repay him on that day. In this life, folks, Christians, we lose. But there is a God who is judging everything, and he is going to make everything right. Somebody might lie about you and you could lose your job. Maybe somebody comes and, and they criticize you or they take some of your words and twist them. How are you supposed to respond as a Christian? They've been mean to me, I'll be mean to them. You hurt me, I'll hurt you. No, that's not what the Lord says. He said, vengeance is mine, I'll repay. Love your enemies and leave that to me. I'll take care of that. Or like Karen Sorensen, she sat down on the sidewalk prayerfully, nonviolently, 
in front of an abortion clinic in Fargo, North Dakota, and she got nine months in Bismarck State Penitentiary trying to save lives. The Lord is the righteous judge. He will make all things right. If you're being persecuted or oppressed, did you notice verse 9? The Lord is a stronghold to the oppressed. And do you remember what James said in James 5, 4? Behold, the wages of laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. The cries of the harvest. James is saying, you folks have taken advantage of the poor and you've not paid them their wages and they are crying out to God and he's going to square the account. But you've taken advantage of your fellow man and God will judge you for that. And what about the suffering saints in heaven? In Revelation 6, 9, when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? The martyrs are crying out, God, when are you going to avenge our blood? When is righteousness going to be established? How are we to respond? 1 Peter 2.23, speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued to entrust himself to him who judges justly. That's how we respond as Christians. Peter says, guys, we're going to face persecution and trials but I want you to be just like your Lord. Continue to do good, and they're going to hate you for doing good, but just keep doing good and loving people, and I want you to endure this suffering the way Jesus did. Just entrust your soul to a righteous judge who's going to make everything right. Psalm 9 is about a man praising God. Why is he praising God? He's praising God because he's worthy. He is praising God because God has destroyed all of his enemies totally and completely. And he is praising God because God is the righteous judge of all the earth. And I will close with a quote from A.W. Tozer. The resurrection and the judgment will demonstrate before the world who won and who lost. We can wait. We can wait. Let's close in a word of prayer.